Our scripture this morning is the story of Easter from Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. I invite you to follow along. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood, be stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he is risen. Remember how he told you when he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, jo Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh, thanks, Jennifer. Let's pray, shall we? Uh, God, thank you for this day and all that it represents. We come uh, to celebrate, help us do that. We come to explore again, help us do that. We come to engage again, help us do that. Uh, pour out your spirit on us, God, and help us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, happy Easter. <laughs> Christ is risen. <laughs> amen, amen. You know, even as I uh, say that and experience that earlier in the service, I'm, uh, I, I'm aware, so, so aware that uh, a, a group of this size on this day brings together a whole bunch of different kinds of people and we're all in the room for all sorts of different kinds of reasons today. And uh, I had this thought that maybe when we say that, you know, Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. Uh, some of us are probably in different places. Some respond with gusto, you know, he is risen indeed. And, some of us might be responding verbally because that's what everybody else is doing. And um, I would imagine if we're all cards on, on the table, some of us in a, a group this size probably are choosing uh, to, to, uh, not to verbalize that because we don't really believe it in our, in our hearts. And uh, I, didn't, I didn't grow up in the church and what goes on in the North American church on Easter Sunday has always kind of intrigued me. There's all these, there are all these tensions in the air and uh, I feel like I have to name them every Easter. So if you come every Easter and you think, this guy does this every year, why does he do this? Just because I need to. Uh, because I would rather name them than somehow inadvertently be, be held hostage by them, right? So uh, there are all sorts of places of, of belief in us today. Uh, some people sold out on the claims of Jesus and all the church stuff. Some uh, follow Jesus but struggle with kind of organized religion like the, the church. Uh, some think Jesus was a good guy but might struggle with the unique claims that he made. Some are skeptical of all things Christian and uh, maybe are, are in the place of thinking this whole deal is a, uh, an emotional crutch built on a faulty assumption. Um, 
probably not many, but maybe some of us, if truth be told in our hearts, are kind of antagonistic to this whole thing even, and we're here just for some relational purpose, uh, not, not really because of the message itself. And, and that gets to the reasons we're here. Maybe you're an adult, uh, a young adult, and you're here because you know, this is just part of the gig with your parents in your home. Um, may, maybe, maybe you're a parent and you're here because you know this is meaningful to your kids, and, but, but in your heart it, it's not as meaningful. Um, you know, just, just we're, we're all over the place, right? Maybe some of us woke up and said, sweet, it's Easter. I can't wait to be with my, my church family. This is, this is great. Uh, there's, there's, there's faith in the room today. There's hope. There's, there's probably some tension. There's doubt. I would imagine there's some reluctance. There might even be a little bit of anger here and there based on what's going on in, in your life. There's skepticism. There's love. And we're all over the place. Um, so we got all that going on. And that's just real when we get a group together. And at the same time, this is the Super Bowl of Christianity, right? This is the day when we gather together as a church and celebrate the central claim of, of the faith. Uh, and that central claim even brings its own tension, the claim that Jesus was resurrected from the dead in his body. Not, not metaphorically, not just spiritually, not philosophically or allegorically, but physically in his body, a human being who was alive, who died, and who lives again. That's, that's the claim. And some of us believe that and some don't. You know, some of us believe that and some won't. Uh, some of us believe that and some uh, kind of think it's a bunch of nonsense. And uh, I come from that stock that uh, I, I don't, I won't, I think it's a bunch of nonsense kind of background. And, and, and looking back, I, I so wish somebody somewhere along the line um, would maybe in a message like this have explained, not just continue to repeating what they believed, but would have explained just a bit, where do you start with this? I mean, how... Why is it that Christians believe this? What's the first step? You know, monopoly, the starting block. Where, where do you begin in this exploration? So this whole message is based around a single verse that we read in the scripture that, that Jennifer read for us. But they, this is referring to the apostles now, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed like uh, seemed to them like nonsense. It just seemed like nonsense. You know, those, uh, those folks in that group did not believe the claim that Jesus had been raised from the dead because it seemed like nonsense to them. I mean, let's not, let's not dismiss that. If this whole deal seems like nonsense to you, as it did to me at one point, this message is for you. My best swing at making some sense of this thing called Christianity and the starting block, the very first step you know, toward, toward exploring this kind of deal. And by the way, if you find yourself in a place of thinking this is a bunch of nonsense, uh, we find ourselves in good company because that's exactly where the apostles of Jesus began. Believing this was, or not believing, because this seemed like nonsense. We all have to grapple with this, with the, the, 
the, the unbelievable, nonsensical nature of the claim because people don't come back from the dead. That just doesn't happen. But that is the central claim of the faith. But then, you know, the last week of Jesus' life had all sorts of unexpected turns in it. If perchance you were with us last week, we talked about the unexpected turns of, of that Palm Sunday story. All sorts of unexpected stuff cropped up. Jesus turned out to be a, com- a completely different kind of king than people thought he was. Different kind of kingdom he, he in- inaugurated. And then, you know, Jesus was captured by the Romans and, and crucified. He died. That wasn't supposed to happen. He was supposed to be the leader of this great rebellion. And here he, he doesn't even fight back. He just submits to execution on the cross. That, what? That's not the way it's supposed to be. And then finally, the, the ladies of this kind of core group who were gathered around Jesus go to the tomb that third day after, after he died and they come back with this nonsensical story that they were visited by an angel who said that Jesus had risen. It makes absolutely no sense. And if you take note of the scripture, none of them went back but one, Peter. He alone explored the unexpected. Everybody else just wrote it off because, of course, it was nonsense. So, as we think about this, the nonsensical claim of Easter, where do we begin? If we don't consider ourselves followers of Jesus, where do we begin? Because we can't begin with the Bible if we're not followers of Jesus, can we? So let's set the Bible aside. And let's talk for a moment about what we know outside of the Bible, not using the Bible at all, from other non-Christian historical sources. What is it that we know for sure? From those non-Christian historical sources, we know for sure that Jesus was a real person. And there there was a time in my life, I'm, I'm rather embarrassed to admit this, there was a time in my life when I needed to hear that because I honestly believed Jesus was a fictional character. I didn't grow up in the church, and I, I, I did not understand that Jesus was an actual historical person whose real existence is substantiated by historical sources outside the Bible. I didn't know that. If you would have asked me, I would have, I would have said, and I probably would have argued, that Jesus only exists in the Bible. He's the main character of a spiritual story that Christians believe. And it's very comforting to them. It's, it's important, and we should value that. We should respect that. But if you were to ask me, was he a real person who actually walked on the earth, I would have said no, and I probably would have argued because I just didn't know about the other historical sources. There are many. We know that Jesus was a real person. We also know that Jesus was a Jewish rabbi who caused a huge brouhaha in the religious establishment of his day, this kind of temple uh, culture in Jerusalem. That, That culture was led by the priestly class, the Sadducees, we also know from extra-biblical sources that, that Jesus caused such a brouhaha that these, these power players, the Sadducees, the priestly class who controlled the temple and were in cahoots with the Romans, got so frustrated at him that they, they played the political angles, captured him, and worked with the Romans to ultimately get Jesus crucified. All of that, not even ever picking up the Bible. We know those things to be true. That's historical fact. We also know for sure, this might be a a surprise to you, we also know for sure that three days after the crucifixion of Jesus, the tomb of Jesus was found empty. 
Did you know that? We know this for sure. This is not a claim of faith. This is a statement of history. It really is. I'm not just working the angles here. Only people who are way on the fringe of historical conversation claim that the tomb of Jesus was not found empty. If you go back and you you read what people wrote in the first couple centuries, it's very telling that in the ancient world, all of the conversation around the tomb of Jesus was oriented around explaining how the tomb became empty, not contending the fact that it was found empty. Very telling. In fact, not a single anti-Christian author that I know of in the first two centuries denied that the tomb of Jesus was found empty. They all sought to squelch this early Christian movement by explaining how the tomb became empty, not that it was actually found empty. So, the empty tomb of Jesus, apparently in the first two centuries, was a universally accepted historical fact. So, here's the thing. Setting the entire Bible aside... We have a very significant historical claim with which we need to grapple. And we know Jesus lived. We know Jesus died. We know the tomb of Jesus was found empty three days after he died. So how do you explain that historical fact? This is the starting point. This is the square of the Monopoly board where you put all the playing pieces to begin the game. It is the first step in the Christian faith how to explain the empty tomb of Jesus. Because all serious-minded people across these last 20 centuries understand that the tomb was actually found empty and that it must be explained. Therefore, people have forwarded explanations over this amount of time. How do we explain the empty tomb? Now, if you find yourself in a place similar to the place I found myself when first confronted with this, which is the place of relegating this question in your internal world to the realm of fringe thinking for religious people, and you don't consider yourself a religious person, which is exactly where I was, I invite you, just for a moment, would you would you open yourself this much to consider it? I promise no arm twisting. I've been in the place where the internal dialogue is saying, no, no, no. Can you press the pause button just for a second on that and and entertain the possibility that there might be something to explore here? I invite you, because it's not a spiritual question. It is a historical question. How do you explain the empty tomb of Jesus? How did his tomb become empty? Where did he go? Many people think that when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, the burden of proof is on Christians to give evidence that it happened. That's not really the case. Again, because the claim is not spiritual. The claim is historical. And if the claim is historical, that puts the responsibility of explaining the empty tomb on everyone, not just on those who believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. 
So if one does not believe in the resurrection of Jesus, you must come up with a historically feasible explanation for the empty tomb that actually holds water, that's believable. And again, serious-minded people across the centuries have tried this. They've they've sought to explain this. Uh, Obviously, there's the, the Christian explanation that Jesus, in fact, was raised from the dead by the power of God, that God is real, that God loves human beings so much that he came to earth in the person of Jesus to do all that, that he claimed to do and, and, and to, to be the person he claimed to be. It's central claims of the gospel, right? And, and all the other explanations seek to hold on to the historical reality of an empty tomb, all acknowledging that, while explaining it without a resurrection. And over the years, four have come to the top. There are, there are a bunch of theories, but these are, are uh, the, the four kind of heavy hitters, so to speak. Uh, the conspiracy theory, the hoax theory, the swoon theory, and the wrong tomb theory. So just quickly now, because the, these are details. The, the, the conspiracy theory is this idea that the disciples came and stole the body. The tomb was empty, historical fact, so it could be explained by the disciples coming and stealing the body of Jesus, doing away with it such that no one could ever find it. But the, th- that might be historically feasible, right? But the, the test of does it hold water is hard because of several things. We have to consider the character of the apostles. I mean, it would seem from all the rest of their lives, their, their entire life trajectory was one of giving of themselves for other people. If they stole the body, we have to believe that they willingly deceived thousands, initiated a movement that would move forward, and ultimately result in the death of thousands in those first hundred years. I mean, the Christians in that first century uh, endured horrific persecution, uh, which, by the way, is another profound argument for the truth of Christianity. Why would anyone in the first century choose to become a Christian? if they could envision envision their friends being fed to lions. Why even think about that, right? But that's, that's, that's step three, really. Step one is the tomb. What do we do with the tomb? Conspiracy theory. So the disciples were, were seemingly pretty good people giving up their lives. To believe the conspiracy theory, you also have to account for the change in the apostles. I mean, that, that first Easter evening, they were cowering in fear, right? And, and 50 days later, at least according to the history recorded in scripture and the early growth of the church has recorded elsewhere, these apostles were transformed from from fearful, cowering people hiding in a room, locking the door, hoping the Jewish leaders don't find out where they are to walking right out into the same temple uh, announcing that Jesus is alive from the dead. I mean, somehow you got to account for this this transformation from preoccupation with their own well-being to complete abandon in announcing what they've understood now to be true. And finally, to buy the conspiracy theory, you must believe that all the apostles were willing to die for what they knew to be a lie. Because that is indeed what happened, history tells us. Eleven of them went on to be executed because they simply would not stop talking about Jesus. And if, if it had been a conspiracy, you wonder, would all that happen? I don't know. Conspiracy theory, hoax theory, that somebody else stole the body. Not the disciples, but somebody else. Couldn't have been the Jewish leaders or the Roman authorities because they had an interest in producing the body, not hiding it. So then you have to go toward, okay, if somebody other than the disciples or the Jewish leaders or the Romans stole the body, then maybe, maybe grave robbers. But the problem with that is all the things of value were still left in the tomb. So then you think, okay, maybe somebody 
robbed it to kind of perpetuate this hoax of resurrection, but to do that, you'd have to understand culturally or spiritually that some people might have been expecting a resurrection, but we can prove that nobody was expecting this. This thought was in no one's mind in the ancient world that that Jesus would rise from the dead now. The Pharisees held to a resurrection at the end, but not to this in-between kind of resurrection. So this hoax theory has big holes too. The swoon theory says that Jesus didn't really die on the cross, that he fainted and was wrapped in the grave clothes, placed in in the tomb. Uh, There was a cultural norm to wrap the body quite tightly in grave clothes, mummy-like in strips of linen. Uh, It would be nearly physically impossible for a first person to break free of that from the inside. Um, And and then uh, uh, there's the other hurdle of if a person so injured that they, they fainted, Uh, and were thought to be dead and and placed in the tomb, actually revived, how could that person go on to convince other people that they were the victor over death? Because step two in this exploration process of Christianity, step one is how do we explain the empty tomb? Step two is what do we do with the appearance stories? Additional historical claims, not just spiritual claims. Right? Uh, Even outspoken critics of Christianity kind of uh, poo-poo this, this theory, saying this, this couldn't really have happened. Then there's the wrong tomb theory. This is really the fourth of the, the biggest, and it suggests that the women who went first to the tomb were distraught over the death of Jesus and that his grief, uh, and, and, and in their grief and the kind of the dim morning light, they ended up going to the wrong tomb, missed the way, and, and ended up at the wrong place. Um, and thinking that they were at the tomb of Jesus, but at an, another tomb, they imagined Christ had risen from the dead and perpetuated this, this kind of story. This has holes too. Um, the first being is pretty condescending toward the women, right? But the, the other being that the, the Jewish leaders and Romans could have just gone to the right tomb and said, here's the body, Christian thing, done. So, so th- those really are it. I am not spinning this. I'm trying to be as, as intellectually honest as I can. These are the four major theories. There are other theories, but they kind of get weirder from here, not better. That I'm, I'm serious. I mean, you can, you can look at them for yourself. These are accessible, right? They really are. Um, so, so the ideas contained in these theories represent the world's best attempt at explaining the empty tomb of Jesus without the bodily resurrection of Jesus. So if, if you don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, and like me, you find all of these theories lacking, how do you explain the empty tomb? You know, the word repent gets a bad rap. It seems like culturally, we kind of define it as, uh, hey, you're bad, you should stop being bad. Biblically, what the word means is change your thinking. Turn your thinking, turn. It's an invitation to wonder whether the world might be different than we think it is. It's an invitation to wonder whether what's going on in the world and the life that each of us is experiencing right now might be different than we think. 
know, I, I know all that stuff I said at the beginning is true. D different reasons we're here, different places of belief. I, I get that. Th those tensions are real. The inner dialogue is very real too. I know, I know it. I mean, I'm not sure where your inner dialogue is going. It might be already to lunch or whatever we're going to have to eat. Uh, it might be grappling with what I'm saying. If your inner dialogue is grappling with what I'm saying, that, that inner dialogue might be positive, it might be negative. I, I, I don't know. At, at the end, it doesn't really matter why you're here, you are. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you're into. You're here now, and you're listening. So even though there's a lot of people, could we just, just for a moment, act like it was coffee, this little quiet coffee table, just you and me, just talking as friends. And I, I would say, I, I, I know, no, I, I, I know, I know. It, it seems crazy. I know. I thought it was crazy, I mean, nonsensical, right? it, insane. This can't happen. And it's real. It really did happen. I've kind of gone down the road of exploring it and was utterly stunned by not only what I discovered, but whom. I discovered who I discovered, I should say. The, the, the very first Christian sermon ever, preached by that same Peter who was the first to go and explore the nonsensical claim. Peter preached the very first Christian sermon. It's recorded in Acts 2. Here are some snippets of it. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Again, these were obvious to everybody, historical realities, they had seen them. And you, with the help of wicked men, men put him to death by nailing him to the cross, but God raised him from the dead. And, and here it is, the starting point of the Christian claim says Peter, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. See, Peter's doing the tomb thing. He's saying, look, when, when people are put in a tomb, after people are put in a tomb, there are only two types of tombs. Tombs that still contain the people and the one that doesn't. But God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. Two kinds of tombs after people have been placed and the ones that still contain the people and the one that no longer contains anyone. And the Bible goes on to record when the people heard this this first Christian sermon, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter's very, very quick reply was, repent and be baptized. And unless we just gloss over that and think it just the kind of a Christian formula, 
the resurrected Jesus was proclaimed. People were struck by the reality that David's tomb is right over there and he's still in it and Jesus' tomb is right over there and he's not in it. And they asked, what shall we do? And Peter's first word was, change your thinking. Change your thinking about what's really going on in this world because without Jesus, you're living with a frame of understanding that is not true. It is less than fully real. The truth is this. We live in a world where a resurrection has happened. We live in a world where a resurrection has happened. At first, that claim seems like nonsense. These are all very normal, natural, and predictable human responses, by the way. I think we all go through this the first step is no way. The next step, which we'll hit next week, so I invite you back, the apostles went through it too. It said they did not believe, not because the word seemed like nonsense anymore, but they did not believe because of their joy and amazement. That's kind of interesting. The next phase is, could this maybe be true? Wow. Wow, really? But you're still not really believing yet. And then as we begin to grapple with this and think maybe, just maybe this is really true, a whole new world emerges. And, and looking back, you explain the journey just as the Bible does, as a birth a new birth because everything is brand new. And not absent of pain and suffering, but much, much better. Friends, Christ is risen. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me, please. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are not just an idea we rehearse week after week in church services. Thank you that you are the person you claimed to be and that you accomplished the work you said you came to do. And thank you, Lord, that you live right now I pray, God, that if there be any hurdle or barrier in any of us with regard to that claim, that you would pour out your spirit on us and guide us toward you in, in a way that is undeniably from you. Help us, Jesus, to believe. Help us wherever we are on the process. If this seems like nonsense, God, you know our hearts. If, there's a, if the door is cracked just a teeny, teeny little bit, that's all you ask. All you ask of us is just to not keep the door locked. So Father, would you, would you pour out your spirit and flood into us and help us. Help us see what's really going on in this world. Help us understand your claims and help us turn to you. Uh, we love you, Lord. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.